Few things are more peaceful than the sound of silence after a spectacular storm. The Gospel writer Mark records the time when the disciples were in the boat and a fierce gale came on them and waves were crashing into the boat and water was pouring into the boat and filling the boat up and Jesus, because He had been ministering to people and, and, uh, and healing many people and casting out demons, was tired and so He went and fell asleep and He was sleeping through this fierce storm. And they wake Him up and they yell out, Master, are You going to let us die? And Jesus got up and He said, Peace, be still. And the text says that the wind died down and it was perfectly calm. The water must have been like a sheet of glass following a spectacular storm. And I can imagine for the disciples that the silence was almost deafening. Storms in the spiritual life come as well. But there is peace that will come after the storm. All spiritual storms will pass away. In chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation, there have been some fierce storms of judgment that we have looked at. They've come on the face of the earth. This is a prophetic book, that is, a book that points us to the future, what will happen during the time prior to Christ coming to reign as king. And prior to him coming to the earth, the second time, he will judge the earth. And He will judge the earth with many judgments, many many, uh, fierce plagues. Even believers are killed for their faith. And and, uh, because they reject the Antichrist, because they do not bow down to His image, and the pain and sorrow that happens during that seven-year period will be the worst in human history. And yet, just like every storm, for the believer at least, this too shall pass. And this storm of judgments will be followed by a sobering calm which will mark the end of the great day of God's wrath. It will mark the end of the tribulation period. Between the tribulation and the millennium, there will be 75 days according to Daniel chapter 12. And during this time, the earth will be cleaned up and Jesus will judge the sheep and the goat nations. And now we come to what's going to take place just prior to Christ's coming and including His coming in chapter 20, verses 1-10. through And that will be our text for this morning. Let me read beginning in chapter 20 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. 
Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This passage this morning is God's Word to us And what God is telling us in this passage is that Christ will reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Christ will reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Before He can reign, He has some some cleaning up to do, so to speak. And the uh, the main culprit is Satan himself. We see this in verses 1-3. through That that Satan is captured and put into prison, the abyss, for 1,000 years. Now, we, we saw last time, two weeks ago, that the beast and the false prophet, that is the Antichrist and his, his comrade, his sidekick, that had been reigning on the earth during the tribulation period, they at this time will be, will be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. Following the Battle of Armageddon, Satan is still roaming around. And so this is when the, the, uh, the, um, the angel, notice verse 1, the angel who has the key of the abyss, grabs Satan and puts him there. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. That is, Satan. What's interesting here is that God is so powerful that He doesn't have to come and fight this battle on His own. He simply sends one of His angels and takes care of Satan through him. That's how powerful our God is. It's not as if God and Satan are on the same plane and we just really hope God's going to win. God is Creator. Satan is part of the creation. And God can easily move Satan and do what He wants with him. And, and this, is, this will be clear just prior to the Millennial Kingdom. That is the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. Satan will be bound by this angel of God and put into the abyss into the abyss. That is, a bottomless pit where, where uh, demons, some demons are even there now. But during that time, during that thousand years when Christ is on this earth and reigning with His people, Satan will be in the abyss, incarcerated for a thousand years. And clearly we are talking about Satan because verse 2 gives us the list of names that are given to him, among others says he laid hold, that is the angel laid hold of the devil. He grabbed him, or excuse me, of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. The dragon is the fiercest creature imaginable, and yet he's no match for God. He's no match for this angel of God whom God sends. He is the serpent of old. We should be immediately think, when we think serpent, we should immediately go back to the Garden of Eden. When he deceived Adam and Eve, to to plunge men into a curse that we are still under until Christ makes all things right. Notice where the angel sends him. Verse 3, And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not 
he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. The length of the incarceration is the thousand years. It's, it's coextensive with the amount of time that Jesus will reign on the earth as king. He will reign without the obstruction of Satan and his demons. Jesus will have a, a perfect kingdom. And the reason for his incarceration there in verse 3 is so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. The real purpose behind putting Satan away for a period of time is so that Christ can come and reign unhindered by the influence and power of Satan over his people. Right now, to an extent, we are, we are influenced by Satan and his demons. Satan is trying to fit you into this world's mold to try to remove you from your desire to follow God. But at that time, he will not be around. He will not allowed, be allowed to influence anyone for evil. And so, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then, verse 4 tells us what will happen during this 1,000 year period. And that is that Christ will reign with His people. Christ will reign with His people. Verse 4 reads, Then I saw thrones. This is John who's writing this, this uh, prophetic book. He's saying, I saw thrones in this vision of the future, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. During this 1,000 year period, this kingdom that is called in other parts of Scripture, Christ will reign as King. We read about this in Psalm chapter 2 in, in the book of Daniel, the prophetic book of Daniel, throughout the Gospels, the Acts, and, um, and now in Revelation, that this kingdom comes and Jesus reigns. What we ought to notice in these verses, particularly in verses 2 through 7, is one phrase that is repeated, and that is 1,000 years. Notice at the end of verse 2 that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Verse 3, the middle of the verse, until the thousand years were completed. Verse 4, um, uh, at the end of the verse, it says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Verse 6, at the end, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And verse 7, when the thousand years are completed. The reason that John repeats this so many times, I think, as, he's, as I've said before, is that, that John is talking about a literal period of time. In fact, any time the word years and a number is used in the same phrase in the Scriptures, it always is referring to a literal period of time. Some people argue that this is not going to be a literal kingdom where Christ reigns, where He comes to this earth. Some people think that it's just a utopian society where we as Christians keep getting better and better and, and, until the place where, where we've reached our pinnacle of potential. But what Christ is saying is no. The only way that there can be an earth that is, that is perfect with a perfect government reigning over these people is if Christ comes Himself. And in order for Him to do that, He needs to clean out all of the, the evil, the people who oppose Him, and the demons as well, which is what we have seen in chapter 6 through 19. 
So we're talking about a literal earthly kingdom of our Savior, Jesus. He had promised to do this when He was on the earth, that I will come again. I go now, but, but I will come again, He said to His disciples. But notice in verse 4 that He doesn't reign alone. It says, Then I saw thrones, John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Now, the fact that John doesn't explain anything here should tell us that he, he is assuming that we already understand what's going on. And if you've been here for the study of Revelation, you know that, that there are only one group of people that reign on thrones. Obviously, Christ will reign on a throne, but as far as a group of people who reigns on throne, thrones, there's only one. And that is the elders that are in heaven in chapter uh, 4 and verse 4. When we looked there, we saw the 24 elders that are worshiping God. They're, they're around the throne of God. And they represent believers. They represent specifically church-age believers. I don't have time to go through all the reasons why I believe that, but what I, I can tell you is that, that in chapter um, 19, we saw the marriage of the Lamb. That is, that Christ will, will uh, take His bride, the church, that is, the believers, and, and become wedded to her. And he will take his future bride and bring her down to the earth, the church, and reign with her. In fact, we have that promise. That is the church, as the church, those who are true believers, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. That, that, as, that because Christ is our future bridegroom, we will sit on thrones with him. That Christ has given us some authority during this kingdom period, during this 1,000 year reign. And that's what, it, what their job is, the job of the church. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and notice, and judgment was given to them. Now, isn't Christ the judge during this time period? Well, He is, but He gives some of His authority to these people, these church-age saints who have now been resurrected. They've already been raptured up to heaven. And now they've been given a glorified body and they're living with Christ and they've been given a semblance of authority. Now, the problem with finite um, judges is that they, they can't know the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Do you realize that when, if you are a believer, if you get to heaven, or when you get to heaven and when you get to the millennial kingdom, you won't know everything. You won't have perfect knowledge like God has perfect knowledge. You won't have infinite knowledge. You will still be limited. You will still be learning more about God. And I will be as well. Uh, we will be perfect in the sense that we will have no sin. We will have perfect bodies that will not be exposed to corruption in any way. But we will not be infinite in our mind, in our understanding. We still will have finite capabilities. And so as, as judges, the church as judges, will sit in judgment over the people on the earth and will be able to weigh facts just like judges do now. They will be able to weigh the evidence and determine which is right and which is wrong. And I'll tell you why that's going to be important here in just a second. Um, the only difference is during the kingdom, as judges, there will be no bias. There will be no prejudice. There will be no fallibility. There will be no bribes. There will be no uh, judges that are tired or prone to disease, and so their, their judgment is clouded. 
There will be no clouded judgments. There will be pure judgment based on real facts. And ultimately, if it can't be determined based on the fact that if it has to be weighed by the thoughts and intents of the heart, then we have the ultimate judge, Christ, who is there who will make the, the ultimate call. But, God, but Christ gives the authority to His church to reign as judges, to reign with Him. What a great thought. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ is going to exalt you to a place of honor. Christ is going to exalt you to a place of honor in the millennial kingdom. But in addition to believers, that is church-age believers in the kingdom, there will also be tribulation martyrs. In the middle of verse 4 it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast that is the Antichrist, or His image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, the mark of the beast. They had not done that. Those who were killed because they had not received the mark of the beast, because they didn't worship the Antichrist. John says they will come to life prior to the Millennial Kingdom and they will be on the earth. They will live with Christ as well. According to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we don't have time to turn there, but the Old Testament saints will be resurrected prior to the millennium too, so they will be there. Of course, tribulation survivors will be there as well. That is, believers during the time of the tribulation who did not give in to the Antichrist and who, did not, and who were not killed for their faith, like the 144,000 Jews. All of those will be in the kingdom as well. They will enter in their normal... Um, human bodies, non-glorified bodies, we could say. So you have all the saints of all time, from Adam all the way till the end of the tribulation, all believers of all time, there on the earth with Christ, reigning as King and His church reigning with Him. So you have the entire 1,000 year period described in this one verse. Prior to the kingdom, Satan is bound in the abyss. The kingdom comes. Christ reigns with His church saints over the rest of the people on the earth. But there's one final judgment that's going to come and that's going to come at the end of the millennial kingdom. At the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And that is the judgment of all the ungodly. Verses 5 and 6. Notice, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And we're going to look at this more in more detail next year, but, but this is simply a preview of what's going to happen at the end of the kingdom. That every single dead body in the ground, okay, remember, all the saints are already on the earth, but every single dead body in the ground and the sea will give up their dead and they will come and stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment. And they will have to give an account for their life. Do you realize that everyone will be raised to life one day, whether good or evil? Some will be raised to share in the joy of the kingdom with their Savior. All the rest will be, will be raised to life to stand in judgment before Christ. Notice the timing of this resurrection in verse 5. 
They will not come to life until the thousand years are completed. So at the end of the 1,000 years, this will not be a joyful resurrection for them. For they will arise to stand in judgment before the holy God. But there is a good resurrection that John alludes to here at the end of verse 5 and then in verse 6. He says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed is holy and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with Him a thousand years. So John kind of skips around here chronologically, but if you follow what he's saying here, this is a, this is a message of hope to you. John is, is inserting a word of encouragement here to his readers. He wants to make sure that don't despair. Just because all the dead are going to be raised to be judged by God, don't despair. Because there is a first resurrection that you can be a part of. And he says in verse 6 that those who are part of the first resurrection will not take, a part, take part in the second death. Now, there's, there's uh, three types of death that are talked about in the Scriptures. One is a physical death. We all will face physical death. When our body is separated from our spirit, that is, our body is put into the ground and our spirit is, is uh, either sent to heaven or to hell. That's physical death. But then there's a second death. The second death is the one that's talked about here in verse 6. And that is a spiritual death. It is a death that separates us. All death means is separation. It is a separation of, of us, our souls, from God forever. Uh, uh, from God. That's spiritual death. And then there's an eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. His special favor. And what John is talking about here is that those who are part of this first resurrection, I'll talk about what that means here in just a second, but those who are part of this first resurrection will not take, a part, take part in that second death. They will not be separated from God spiritually. That's the worst part about hell, by the way. It's not that God is not there. God is there. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He is there, but He's there in the sense of a judge, not as a merciful Father. And, and those who will spend eternity in hell will receive no favor from God because of their rejection of Him on this earth. This first resurrection is a result of Christ's resurrection. Christ was the first to be raised to eternal life. When He died, He was placed in the grave, but then He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. He, he was resurrected. And because He was resurrected, those who are in Him, the Scriptures say, will also be resurrected. That's what this first resurrection is talking about. That we will be raised to life with Him. We will be raised to eternal joy, eternal favor from God. But those who are not in Him that is, those who are not part of this first resurrection will be a part of what we could call the second resurrection, which is where all the ungodly are raised, but not raised to life. They're raised to judgment. And that will be final judgment. Let's get back to our passage in verses 7-9 through because we see the release of Satan for a short period of time. Remember, Satan had been incarcerated for this entire 1,000-year kingdom 
And now he's released in verses 7 through 9. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Satan is released. Do you remember why he was imprisoned? Verse 3 says, so that he no longer can deceive the nations. So during this 1,000 year period, he cannot deceive the nations. But, he'll be released for a short time to deceive some people. Now how can this be? Didn't I just say that they were all believers in the kingdom? That the Old Testament saints were raised to life before the kingdom. That the tribulation martyrs were raised to life before the kingdom. That the tribulation survivors, the believing tribulation survivors, just entered into the kingdom naturally. And then the church, of course, comes down with Christ. How can there be any people to deceive? And the answer is, that there are new people born during this time. Now, with our glorified bodies, we will not be capable of, re- of procreation. Uh, so, so that means the Old Testament saints, the tribulation martyrs, those who have died, all who have died, and church saints will not be able to procreate during the kingdom period. But there is one group of people who can procreate during that period, and that's those tribulation survivors. The believers who did not give in to the Antichrist made it to the end of the tribulation without dying, made it into the kingdom. They are believers. They're eternally believers as the Scriptures teach. But they can have children. And what are children like when they are born? Are they naturally inclined to follow God? To do what's right? Do you ever have to teach a child to hit another child or to, to, to take a toy away or to throw a fit? Do you have to teach a child to do any of those things? Okay, so, so we, because of our father Adam, are born in sin. That we are sinful creatures by nature. And the same will be true during the tribulation, or excuse me, during the millennial kingdom with these believers who come into the kingdom, they will have children. And these children will be raised in a great society, but they will still have to make a choice to follow Christ. Their hearts will still have to be regenerated, just like every other believer of all time. So what's going to happen is that there are going to be children that are born during this time, between 30 and 40 generations during a 1,000-year period, of people who are born in this society, but they will be born with sinful hearts. And they will go through all the motions. They will be externally conforming, just like people in Israel were. They would come, they would bring the sacrifices, but lots of the people were just doing it. They they weren't in it. Their minds weren't in it. They weren't doing it because they loved God. And there will be people like that during the kingdom. And they will pull the wool over even our eyes. Because remember, we can't see their hearts. There's one who will know. And that is Jesus Christ. He will know their thoughts and intents. And He will allow them to live in this kingdom as they are externally conforming. And at the end of that time, He will release Satan. Satan will deceive those people who had not turned to Jesus Christ. It will deceive them. And this will set up a war against Christ and His people. 
Satan, it says in this text, will gather them together at the end of verse 8, will gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, consider this for a second. We live in a society that is prone to blame shifting. The, the answer that we have for a certain person's sin is because of something else. If a person is an alcoholic or a homosexual or a murderer or a cheater or an abuser of a spouse or children, we pass the blame, don't we? We say, well, they can't help it. They were what? They were born that way. Or they had a bad upbringing. Or they live in a really difficult set of circumstances. And we, so we say it's not their fault. And I grant that our circumstances and our upbringing play into our thoughts and it plays into our, our actions. But ultimately, we have a responsibility for our own actions. James chapter 1 says, No one has ever been drawn away except by his own lust. That is, we can't even use the argument that Satan made me do it. We choose to do it. And this will be very clear during the Millennial Kingdom. Satan's not here. They're not living in a world that is prone to sin, that is, is, is against God. They're living with a king who is perfect. They are living with parents who are sinless. They are living in a community, at least the first generation of them, in a community of sinless people. They, won't, they can't say, it was because of my upbringing Satan made me do it. It's because of my current circumstances because they will be living in a near-perfect society. There's only one problem. They have a sinful heart. This shows us the wickedness of the human heart. That we can't pass our, the blame to all those other things. But our own heart is responsible for the judgment that we, we deserve. We saw during the tribulation period that there are many people who oppose God. And even though they see these great plagues, these great judgments that come upon them, they see them as from God. They recognize them from God. Instead of turning from their sin and, and following God, you know what they do? They blaspheme God and they still fail to repent. Despite the clear signs, our hearts are wicked they are desperately wicked from the time that we are conceived. And even apart from Satan, we are capable of the worst types of sin. Apparently, these unbelievers will go through the motions, again, much like Israel did. Satan will be released. He'll gather them together. They will try to make war. But notice what happens in verse 9 when he tries to make war against Christ and His army. And they, that is Satan, and these who were deceived, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem, which will be the capital of the world at that time. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There will be no contest. Christ won't even have to swing a sword. None of His army will have to either. They will gather around all the saints as if they're going to destroy them. Fire will come down from heaven. It will be over as quickly as it started. 
And the and uh, verse ten tells us the final the final destination of Satan. And the de- and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire. No more opportunity ever to deceive any of the nations. God will now be able to live among His people in a special way, unhindered by any sin or corruption in any way. And we will live, those who are believers will live and reign with Christ forever. Revelation, this book, is about a disputed king. Will the real king please stand up? Is it Satan? Because it seems like Satan has a hold on this world. In fact, the Scriptures even call him the God, small g, of this world. That he has some power over this world. Is Satan the real king? Or is it Christ? But during the tribulation of the millennium, it will be clear who is the king. No one will question who the real king is at that time. It will be clear that Satan was just a fraud. He was only a pretender because he will be destroyed in such quick fashion. The angel will grab him, put him into the abyss for a thousand years with no struggle. He will be released, but then he will be destroyed with fire and sent to the lake of fire forever. Do you fear Satan? Are you afraid of his power? You should be. Because he is the strongest creature that there is. But the key word there is creature. He is a part of God's creation. God is the Creator. And He is much more powerful than His creation. No no plan of His can be thwarted, thwarted. And so, really, Satan is just a temporary ruler. God is the ultimate ruler. He's allowing Satan to do what he's doing now. So you should fear Satan, but do you fear Satan more than God? You shouldn't because Satan is no match for the King of Kings. He started out as an angel in heaven. But when he tried to exalt himself to the place of God, he was sent down from heaven. And Ezekiel 28 talks about that. It happens sometimes before he, as the serpent, tempts Adam and Eve. From that time until the midpoint of the tribulation, he's allowed to come back and have interaction with God. Remember, he does this with Job on behalf of Job. He says, of course Job serves you that way, God. Because you give him everything. Let me take that all that stuff away and then he will stop serving you. Well, all the way up until the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan then has a war with Michael and his angels and he's sent down out of the third heaven. Excuse me, out of the second heaven. He's no longer able to, to spend any time up there and he, he spends all of his time on the earth going after believers, trying to kill them, trying to get them to turn away from God. But here, and then he's sent down to the abyss during the, the kingdom, and then finally, he's sent out of the world completely into the lake of fire for all of eternity. His descent is historic. He will be destroyed forever. Let me give you uh, four points of application as we conclude as a result of our study from this passage. Number one, parents, 
Work hard to instruct your kids in the ways of God. Work hard to instruct your kids in the ways of God. It's not enough to shelter them from all the evil that is out there. It's not enough. You could, you could bunker them up in a hole, not allow them to watch any TV, listen to any radio, read any books or magazines, and just teach them the Bible for their whole life. Do you know what? They could still turn away from God. Why? Because something follows them. Something follows you. Something follows me wherever we go. It is our sinful human heart. It's not enough to shelter them from the world. Instead, we need to equip them to go out into the world, to live in this world, because that's where we live. We can't get away from all the sin. Jesus said if we did, we'd have to go out of this world. We can't do that. The only hope for those children is for God to do a work of regeneration to save them from their sins. And so you need to pray for your kids. You need to instruct them. You need to teach them about the glory of God. You need to show them the majesty of Jesus Christ. You need to tell them why the resurrection is important. Why He died for you. You need to keep doing this their whole lives. Even after they've made a profession of faith, still keep working on them. Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? They can't even know their own hearts. Why would you expect to know their hearts? Keep instructing them. Keep praying for them. Don't give up on them. Continue to use your influence all the way until the end. Number two. God is merciful. God is merciful. The wickedness of man's depravity that is, that, that we have these sinful hearts, apart from Satan, apart from the world system, all that set aside. When we see our hearts for as wicked as they are, it highlights the mercy of God. That He would be willing to, to forbear with us. To be long-suffering with us. You see, God is perfect and He has every right the first time that we sin to destroy us. He has every right to do that. But the fact that He hasn't destroyed you is a testament to His mercy that He's giving you time to repent. And throughout this book of Revelation, that has been a striking chord that has rung over and over again that God is giving people time to repent. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, the psalmist says. He wants all to come to repentance. And even despite the clearest of signs, many people still fail to repent. And that's why God is completely just in His judgment. Number three, everyone will be raised from the dead one day. Everyone will be raised from the dead one day. Some to eternal life based on whether they chose to follow Christ in this lifetime and many to eternal death, eternal judgment. And if that offends you, then you don't understand the nature of your sin against the holy God. It would be one thing if you walked down to downtown Detroit and kicked a bum in the shin. You might not get any trouble for that, but it would be a totally different thing if you kicked the President of the United States in the shin. You see, every time you sin, you don't just sin against your spouse, your child, your coworker, your boss, the government. When you sin, you always sin against the holy God. 
And when you're sinning against God, you're not just sinning against some mayor of a small town or some local judge or a governor or a senator or, or the President of the United States. You're sinning against the God of the universe. And so your sin deserves consequences. So God demands that, that there be a payment that is made There's two choices. Either you can pay for your own sin in an eternal hell, or you can have Christ pay for them as He already has on the cross. And the way that you get, that you appropriate that that, uh, sacrifice, that substitution, is you have to believe in Jesus Christ. That He was enough. That there's nothing more that I can do. My heart is sinful. I can't do anything else except for completely trusting You. You know what God accepts in place of perfection? Because that's what He requires. We can't be perfect. It's not a, okay, we just put out of our, we weigh all of our good things and our bad things. That would be like us going to court and saying, you know, I know I murdered somebody, but look at all these good things I've done over here. What would the judge say? God is, is perfectly holy and He can't just overlook all your sin just because you've done a lot of good things. And so, what Christ has done, He's stood in your place. It's as if there's a a huge wall of water about to wash you out, about to destroy you. And Christ opens up the earth for you and allows that water to be sucked down into it. To be poured down into it. He, He takes that wrath upon Himself. That's what He did in your place. And so what God accepts in place of perfection, perfect righteousness is faith in the One who is perfectly righteous. He accepts faith in Jesus Christ. If you would believe that Jesus died for your sins and that He alone is sufficient enough to pay for your sins and that He raised from the dead for you to live for you, then the Scriptures say you will be saved. simply a belief in Jesus Christ and a turning from your sins recognizing that my sins separate me from a holy God. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be a perfect person from here on out. But what it does mean is that you're willing to give up all of those things in order to follow Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus said while He was on the earth? You need to count the cost. This is not just, okay, yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to have a good eternal life. This is, am I willing to follow the One who died for me? the one who is persecuted, am I willing to follow Him even if it means persecution for me? Everyone will be raised from the dead, some to eternal life, some to eternal judgment. And number four, God's desire is to live among His people. God's desire is to live among His people. He cannot do that until sin is dealt with and He sent His Son to deal with your sin sent His Son to deal with my sin. You see, I'm a sinner as well. I needed a a substitution just like you. And the proof that He has sent His Son, that He he wants to live with you, is that He sent His Son, that he, He gave up His greatest possession to die for you. And His death was completely satisfactory. God accepted it. Of which resurrection will you be a part? It would be a 
will you be resurrected to reign with Christ during the kingdom? Or will you be resurrected at the end of the kingdom to be judged by Christ? Scriptures say, Blessed is the one who has the part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the reminder that Your Word gives us this morning about our Savior who humbled Himself. He enjoyed all the glory of being in, uh, in heaven with You, was not persecuted, tormented, did not have to submit Himself to human weakness, tiredness, disease, He's willing to do that because He wanted to obey You, but He also did it because He loved us. He wanted to give His life for us. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that for us. It's because of that we worship Him. We exalt His name. And we want to give ourselves wholly to Him. To follow Him completely to hold nothing back. We live in a frustratingly enigmatic world. It's hard to understand what's going on. What 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 the purpose is sometimes. We recognize that you know what is best, that you are the creator, and you have what is best in mind for all your people. I thank You for each one who is here today. Thank You for the opportunity to be under Your Word. And I pray that Your Word would grip each heart here. pray that You would strengthen believers, encourage them to continue on in the faith, not to give up, to look forward to that kingdom. And for those who do, have not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will be convicted in their heart of their sin. Recognize that they cannot come to You apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, and no one comes to to the Father except through Me. There's no other way. So I pray that You would show that to them very clearly this morning. And I pray that that, um, Your Spirit would be pleased to move in hearts to change us and to regenerate some. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.